The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Today is April 17th, 2019, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, as always, we'd like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here at the AHEC. As you saw in the hallway behind us, the book is on sale for tonight. All proceeds from the book sales go to support the foundation and everything they do here. We will also have a book signing after the lecture. And with that, it is my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Mr. James M. Scott is the acclaimed author of three books on American naval history, including The War Below, the story of three submarines that battled Japan, and The Attack on the Liberty, the untold story of Israel's deadly assault on a U.S. spy ship. His recent work, which he spoke here at the AHEC for, Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor, was named one of the best books of the year by Kirkus, the Christian Science Monitor, and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and was a 2016 Pulitzer Prize finalist. Throughout his career, Sky has been awarded with multiple honors. He is the recipient of the McClatchy Company President's Award and was named the 2003 Journalist of the Year by the South Carolina Press Association, as well as the 2005 Young Alumnus of the Year by his alma mater, Wolford College. He is also a former Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me make a warm welcome for Mr. James Scott. Great, thanks Carl. Thank you. Do I need to use this? Oh, I've got one, okay. So, good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Thank you guys very much for coming out on a Wednesday night. So, and Carl, thank you for that warm introduction. And I also want to thank uh, Mary, who helped out with all the logistics and getting me here today, as well as uh, Jeff Mangelsdorp. Thank you so much for hosting me again tonight and for a wonderful dinner. Uh, Tim Sullivan, thank you for everything you do here as well. And also a special thanks to uh, Dr. Richard Lackerman, the Dean of the uh, of the War College uh, as well for coming out tonight and for the uh, great company we had tonight at supper. I'd also like to say a special thanks to the uh, historians and the archivists here in the library and the archives here. Uh, when I was working on Target, when I was actually up here speaking about Target Tokyo, I used that time to do a good bit of research for Rampage and actually discovered here in the archives, just literally a few steps away from where we are, some uh, pretty explosive documents that um, sort of weigh in and sort of helped answer some questions about the uh, trial of General Yamashita that I'm going to talk about a little bit later tonight. Um, but so, uh, and actually yesterday and today was actually in there doing research again for a project I'm working on now. So I think uh, you guys have a wonderful institution here, great staff, great faculty, and uh, it's a real treasure. And so and for me, it's a real wonderful opportunity and privilege to get to come back and chat with you all about my latest project. 
American General Douglas MacArthur, driven from the Philippines at the start of World War II, famously vowed to return. And Rampage is the story of his homecoming. The 29-day battle to retake Manila in February 1945 proved a fight unlike any other in the Pacific War. A bloody urban brawl that forced American soldiers to battle block by block, house by house, and even room by room. The end result was the catastrophic destruction of the city and a rampage by Japanese troops that terrorized the civilian population. Landmarks were destroyed, neighborhoods torched, countless women raped, their husbands and children murdered. Not only did this battle give American war planners a glimpse of what retaking the Japanese main islands might involve, but those brief weeks in February 1945 forever transformed a city once known as the Pearl of the Orient, and decimated generations of Filipino families, the ripples of which still echo through lives even today, 75 years later. Now to truly appreciate the tragedy of the Battle of Manila, it's important to rewind to the turn of the 20th century. The United States had captured the Philippines along with Cuba during the Spanish-American War. But unlike Cuba, which we granted independence to, we decided to hang on to the Philippines. The rationale for that was best described by Arthur MacArthur, father of General Douglas MacArthur, and who helped capture Manila during the Spanish-American War and served as a, uh, one of the early military governors. Well, the archipelago, he told Congress in 1902, is the finest group of islands in the world. Its strategic position is unexcelled by that of any other position on the globe. Now, American policymakers realized that Manila which would serve as the nation's front door to the business markets of China, India, and Malaya, needed a facelift to better attract industry and help reflect America's growing global status. To spearhead that transformation, the U.S. hired famed municipal planner and architect Daniel Burnham, who over the course of his career helped guide cities such as Chicago, San Francisco, and Cleveland. He helped with the redo of the National Mall in D.C. and is the one that designed Union Station, which is the big transit hub still there in use at the Capitol today. Chicago's Lakeshore Drive was his handiwork. He also came up with the Flatiron Building in New York, which is a very iconic building there today. Now Burnham saw incredible potential in Manila with its vast natural resources, its centuries-old Spanish churches, and of course the ancient walled city of Intramuros, which was built soon after Manila's founding in 1571. Quote, possessing the Bay of Naples, the winding river of Paris, and the canals of Venice, Burnham wrote, Manila has before it an opportunity unique in the history of modern times. The opportunity to create a unified city equal to the greatest of the Western world with the unparalleled and priceless addition of a tropical setting. Now, in the four decades leading up to World War II, Manila developed into a small slice of America and Asia, home not only to thousands of U.S. service members, but employees of companies like Westinghouse, General Electric, B.F. Goodrich, Del Monte. Often called the Pearl of the Orient, the city boasted an incredible quality of life, with department stores and social clubs, golf courses, and swimming pools. Quote, Manila is by far the most beautiful of all cities in the Orient, described the New York Times in 1932. From the top of the university club, it seems half hidden in a canopy of trees, green everywhere, a city within a park. Now on the eve of World War II, one of Manila's most prominent residents was none other than General Douglas MacArthur, who lived with his wife and four-year-old son, a 
atop a luxurious Manila hotel. Like his father, Douglas MacArthur's life was long intertwined with the Philippines, where he'd served often ever since his graduation from the West Point in 1903. Quote, in this city, he once said, my mother had died, my wife had been courted, my son had been born. For MacArthur, who was the son of a career military officer, who spent much of his life pinballing around America and the rest of the globe, Manila was really the closest thing he had to a hometown. But it was far more than just Douglas MacArthur who enjoyed it. Quote, to live in Manila in 1941, remembered CBS News correspondent Bill Dunn, was to experience the good life. But that good life ended on December 7th when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and invaded the Philippines, launching America into the war. Hoping to avoid a bloody battle for the capital, MacArthur declared Manila an open city. He evacuated his forces to Bataan and the fortified island of Corregidor, just 27 miles out in the bay. For MacArthur, this was far more than just a strategic retreat. He was abandoning his home, forced to leave so fast that the family could only reduce the contents of their entire apartment to just two suitcases that they could take with them. When they walked out and closed the door, the Christmas tree was still standing in the corner of the apartment. Japanese troops fanned out through the capital in January of 1942, rounding up those thousands of American civilians and interning them there at the University of Santo Tomas, which is just above the Pasig River, a big school there, day, day school in the city of Manila. And these internees came from all backgrounds, boasted a wide range of skills. You had everyone from business executives to doctors and accountants, school teachers, carpenters. There were even two golf pros there. These captives hustled to transform this 50-acre campus into a functioning small city, building latrines and beds, bunk beds, sewing mosquito nets and pillowcases, planting crops. Internees even set up a school system for the 500 American children who were interned there, complete with a study hall and even a library. Despite that resourcefulness, conditions, as you might imagine, were pretty cramped. Quote, if you want privacy, read a sign in one of the bathrooms, close your eyes. Now MacArthur endured 77 days in the tunnels of Corregidor before escaping under the cover of darkness in March 1942 with his family and a handful of senior staff. For MacArthur, this was an agonizing event, forced to leave behind thousands of Filipino and American soldiers, troops who had trusted him and who would soon face the death march, followed by years in Japan's notorious prisoner of war camps. Upon reaching Australia, MacArthur made a public promise, I shall return. And those three words would drive him as the weeks turned to months and then years. Now Manila suffered greatly during the three years of the enemy's occupation. Japanese officers seized homes and cars from residents. Others looted food supplies, department stores, stole farm equipment and left fields to rot. Store shelves sat empty, and basic necessities like medicines vanished. Felipe Buencamino, a Manila resident, wrote in his diary, quote, what kind of an army is this that fights a war with pianos and nice residents? As the years passed, Manila's economy collapsed, and the social fabric began to unravel. An army of beggars flooded the streets, while others resorted to thievery, including the plundering of graves in search of gold teeth, Jewelry, dentures, eyeglasses, even clothing. Anything that could be bartered or sold to buy a fistful of rice. Families unable to care for their children 
went so far as to abandon them to orphanages or even sell them. Starvation, meanwhile, ran rampant, claiming as many as 500 souls a day. Marshall Lachalco, a Manila attorney whose diary captured the horror many endured, described it best in a December 1944 diary entry when he said, quote, Today we are living under conditions in which only the fittest among us can hope to survive. And the quote for folks who might not be able to see it uh, in the back that's on the bottom of the slide, I think captures the horror better than anything. And it's a quote from a 1944 American intelligence report, and it says, quote, it is cheaper to buy a child than a hog in the city of Manila today. And that shows you just how desperate things had gotten, that the value of life had plummeted to that level. Now, those American families locked up behind those iron gates of Santo Tomas and other internment camps suffered equally. That earlier ingenuity that these Americans had shown faded as the daily caloric intake plummeted and starvation took hold. A medical survey conducted in January 1945 revealed that the average male internee had lost 51 pounds, the average female 32. To survive, desperate internees ate dogs, cats, pigeons, and even rats, which as you can see from this diary entry here, were selling for eight pesos each on the camp's black market. Quote, I was worried about a lump in my stomach, Louise Goldthorpe wrote in another one of her diary entries. Then I realized it was my backbone I was feeling. By January of 1945, the nearly 3,700 internees at Santo Tomas starved to death at a rate of three to four a day. These five internees lost a combined total of 273 pounds. Quote, we survived on hope, one of them recalled, hope that the American forces would arrive. And those hopes were rewarded on January 9th, 1945. MacArthur's forces returned. Hitting the beaches of Lingayan Gulf in preparation for the 100-mile drive south to liberate Manila. Now, standing in MacArthur's way was Japanese General Tomoyuki Yamashita, whose job was to turn the Philippines into a tar pit, to bog down American forces in their march north toward Japan. Yamashita had proven himself early in the war, seizing Singapore from the British and earning the nickname the Tiger of Malaya. But his rivalry with War Minister Hideki Tojo had led Tojo to park Yamashita on the sidelines of the fight up in Manchuria for much of the rest of the war. Only after the Tojo was fired following the fall of the Mariana Islands in the summer of 1944 was Yamashita's career resurrected and he was sent to the Philippines. And just as MacArthur had come to redeem his promise, so too was Yamashita equally as certain of his fate. He had come to die, but he did not plan to do so in Manila. Instead, he divided up his army and planned to fight a protracted guerrilla war in the woods and jungles of Luzon. Now, in contrast, Rear Admiral Sanji Iwabuchi, who commanded the much smaller Manila Naval Defense Force, had no intention of abandoning the capital, even if Yamashita, his superior officer, had ordered it. Iwabuchi had been a failed sea captain early in the war. He'd had a ship shot out from under him off of Guadalcanal, and he'd survived, which in Japanese culture had been a big disgrace. He'd spent much of the rest of the war parked behind a desk in Tokyo until the deaths of so many other more capable seafaring officers had led to his career resurrection, and he was sent to Manila. And there, in the capital of the Philippines, he too 
saw an opportunity to redeem himself by creating an urban bloodletting similar to Stalingrad. To accomplish this, he divided up his 17,000 soldiers and Marines into several geographic commands that covered northern, central, and southern Manila. Iwabuchi's ultimate plan called for a final defense of the city centered around Intramuros, the ancient Spanish citadel guarded by towering walls, some of them 40 feet thick, 20 feet high. Now around the old walled city, he planned a perimeter of large concrete buildings. These were the government centers, the ones that were built by the Americans that were made of rebar and concrete and designed to withstand typhoons and earthquakes. There were small fortresses. And in the basements of these buildings, they had dug wells and buried food rations just to be able to survive for months if necessary. To make it even harder for the advancing Americans, the Japanese began to barricade the insides of these buildings, going so far as to build staggered walls inside the passageways, filling them with dirt, leaving just enough room over the top so that you could throw a hand grenade. Iwabuchi's forces likewise booby-trapped intersections, more than 50 of them in downtown Manila. This is the corner of what was Darton, Oregon streets, where the Japanese had set out 25 oil drums filled with concrete and sunk 16 railroad axles into the asphalt. In addition, they turned, uh, they created, turned old beach mines into improvised explosive devices, all of which was then ultimately covered by a 50 caliber machine gun and a pillbox in the top right-hand corner up there. This is a photograph of another primitive Japanese tank trap at one intersection, which you can see they've taken two vehicle bodies and they've cabled them together. They've sunk poles into the ground around them, and they've anchored everything with a heavy cable on this tree right here to the side. Now to retake the city, American forces carved up Manila. The 37th Infantry and the 1st Cavalry would enter the city from the north. The 37th Infantry would cross the Pasig River near the Malacanon Palace and then swing toward the waterfront. The cavalry would then envelop the city from the east and make a parallel thrust, while the 11th Airborne would then come up from the south and close the city's back door. Now, despite these preparations, MacArthur was convinced that the Japanese would actually evacuate Manila, just as he had done at the start of the war. He was so confident of this fact that he ordered his staff to begin planning a liberation parade, down to picking the individual jeep assignments for his senior officers picking the parade route, making sure that it would go back in front of his old home atop the Manila Hotel. Complicating the challenge for American war planners at this time was the mix of intelligence that was coming out of Manila. In November and in December of 1944, Filipino guerrillas were radioing that the Japanese appeared to, on, the, on the verge of leaving the city. And there were trucks full of supplies and equipment that were pulling out, much like what Yamashita had ordered. But by January of 1945, the intelligence changed. By then, the Filipino guerrilla reports pointed to the fortification of the city, the building of pillboxes, the planting of landmines, the uh, uh, things of that nature. These residents of Manila, who for three long years had waited and prayed for America's return, watched this growing fortification of the city with alarm and even terror. Quote, defeat is a bitter pill that the Japanese will not swallow, one resident wrote in her diary. Defeat is the one thing that can make them turn into beasts. 6.35 p.m. on February 3rd, the American cavalry rolled into Manila, prepared to liberate the city. In the northern suburbs, troops were greeted as celebrities. And nowhere was that more true than at Santo Tomas, 
where the cavalrymen arrived that first night at 8.30 p.m. Internee Tressa Roca captured that excitement in her diary. Quote, before the men in the tanks knew what was going on, they were pulled out of them and lifted onto the shoulders of our scrawny fellow internees. It was impossible to hold back the worshiping and joyous internees. That night, those starving Americans feasted on army rations while troops spoiled the children with candy. Frank Robertson, a reporter with International News Service, captured just such a scene in his first dispatch from the camp the next morning. Quote, one of the most unforgettable things was the slow smile of wonderment on the pale, tense face of a little girl of four tasting chocolate for the first time. Of course, many in the city were starving as well, and American troops throughout the battle would find themselves swarmed by hungry civilians, including this young Filipino girl here clinging to a box of American army rations. But the excitement over America's arrival proved short-lived. Iwabuchi gave the order on February 3rd, the same day that the Americans reached Santo Tomas, to begin the planned destruction of the city. Incendiary squads swept through the districts north of the Pasig River and began setting fires and dynamiting buildings. MacArthur's pilot, Dusty Rhodes, witnessed the scene from the air. Quote, the spectacle was an appalling sight. The entire downtown section of the city was a mass of flames, he wrote in his diary. Flames rising 200 feet in the air. Manila residents grabbed what belongings they could carry and fled. General Robert Baitler, commander of the 37th Infantry, described it in his report, quote, we were powerless to stop it. We had no way of knowing in which of the thousands of places these demolitions were being controlled, he wrote. Big, modern, reinforced concrete and steel office buildings were literally blown from their foundations to settle crazily in twisted heaps. In addition, the Japanese blew all the bridges over the river, which divided the city. After destroying the city's northern districts, the Japanese fell back across the Pasig River into central Manila, forcing American troops to cross the river and begin what would prove to be an incredibly bloody urban fight. Block by block, American soldiers pressed deeper into the city, frequently slowed by fortifications at intersections, which required troops to blast their way through the backs of adjacent buildings in order to attack the rear of a pillbox. Infantry Major Chuck Hen summarized it best, quote, gains were measured more by street intersections cleared than by blocks secured. Just as perilous, of course, were the fortified buildings, where Japanese Marines used the upper floors to target the advancing Americans. Quote, the preferred solution was to use cannons to blast the upper floors to rubble and then move in, one infantry officer said. An equally favored alternative was to burn the building. When these wouldn't work, riflemen moved in to take the building, floor by floor. One of the worst such battles occurred for Rizal Hall, which is a building there at the University of the Philippines in downtown Manila. As American cavalrymen literally inched room by room, their backs pressed against the wall, hurling hand grenades ahead to drive out the Japanese. After two days of fighting inside this building, the Americans and the Japanese were both dug in on the second floor. Neither side would give up and surrender the grounds they had gained. So both sides instead prepared to hunker down and spend the night inside the blasted remains of this education building. That night, as the American cavalrymen sat there, their fingers pressed against the triggers of their rifles, 
they began to hear the Japanese singing on the opposite side of the building. This is from their report. Quote, this commotion went on for about 45 minutes, culminating in a final burst of song and loud shouting, immediately followed by many reports of exploding grenades and dynamite charges. The cavalrymen continued to sit in the dark and listen. More singing, followed by more grenades, then silence. These detonations went off at half-hour intervals until around 4 a.m., at which time a lasting silence finally settled over the building. The next morning at daybreak, the Americans moved in to find that 77 Japanese Marines had blown themselves up while they had listened to it. As a side note, that building is still in use today at the University of the Philippines as, and for classrooms. Now MacArthur had refused to allow planes to bomb the city for fear of killing civilians, but he relented, relented and permitted artillery for the Americans had suffered heavy casualties crossing the passage. Quote, from then on, putting it crudely, we really went to town, recalled General Baitler. Over the course of the battle, American forces would fire more than 42,000 mortar and artillery rounds into the city. Sixth Army Commander General Walter Kruger described it, quote, some districts of the city were completely destroyed. Between Japanese demolitions and American artillery, Manila was being destroyed from the inside and the out. Men, women, and children retreated below ground where conditions inside cramped air raid shelters devolved as the hours turned to days. Bunkers built to house a single family often held multiple, and with so many bodies pressed so close together, the air inside stagnated and the heat soared. Hans Steiner, in a letter to his mother, recounted his experience. Quote, we lived like dogs, he wrote. All around us were fires and explosions. It was the best imagination of hell one could get. And, of course, such shelters proved easy prey for marauding Japanese troops who often lobbed explosives inside. That was the case for this man here, as you can see, lost his cheek to shrapnel from a hand grenade that was thrown inside his air raid shelter. Many others proved too injured to walk, including this woman, who was placed in a basket by neighbors for transportation to an aid station. In his diary, Santo Tomas attorney Robert Weigel described the parade of wounded who came through the university gates each day looking for help from the American doctors. Quote, they are so far beyond recognition that in many cases one cannot tell whether they are men or women, boys or girls, dead or alive. Now by February 9th, just six days after the Americans had come into the city, Iwabuchi realized that the fight was largely lost. The Americans were across the river and pressing deep into central Manila, while his fortifications along the city's southern border likewise threatened to collapse. The Americans had far more firepower, far more troops. And at that point, the battle took a very evil turn, devolving from a fight over one of Asia's great cities into one of the worst human catastrophes of World War II. Now, an examination the timeline of the dozens of atrocities that occurred in Manila point to February 9th as the fulcrum on which the violence against civilians shifted from suspected attacks, uh, from, uh, attacks against suspected guerrillas to organized mass extermination. American war crimes investigators would later tally 27 major atrocities in Manila. Japanese tossed babies in the air, 
skewering them on the tips of their bayonets. Troops decapitated hundreds of others with swords and burned thousands to death alive. The lucky ones received a bullet. In one such example, Japanese Marines stormed the Red Cross headquarters, going room by room, shooting and bayoneting more than 50 civilians who had taken refugee, refuge there, including two infants, one just 10 days old. The Japanese likewise burned to death more than 500 other men, women, and children inside the German Club, which was a large concrete social hall in downtown Manila where nearby neighbors had gathered uh, for shelter from the uh, fires and the artillery. Incidentally, the remains of the German Club have never been built upon. It's an empty lot still today in downtown Manila. Troops forced hundreds of other civilians into the dining hall at St. Paul's College, where they rigged the chandeliers with explosives and then dynamited them, killing 360 men, women, and children. When I was in Manila in February for a book tour, actually at one of the events I was, where I was speaking, a survivor of the St. Paul's Massacre came up to me and told me about his experiences. One of the more gruesome crimes, the Japanese converted a home on Singalong Street into a house of horrors. Troops went up to the second floor, cut a hole in the floor, and then marched blindfolded civilians inside and forced them to kneel over it. Japanese Marine then cut each person's head off with a sword before kicking the body down in the hole. American war crimes investigators, by counting skulls, later determined that 200 men died inside this residence. Nine miraculously survived, including the gentleman photographed here, one of whom sketched a uh, drawing for the war crimes investigators in March of 1945. Of course, the atrocities went beyond murder. The Japanese rounded up thousands of women, locking many of them inside these four buildings. The last one there on the end is the Bayview Hotel, which was Jean MacArthur's first home when she moved to Manila in 1935. That's another photograph of the Bayview at the end of the battle. Um, there in rooms where tourists had once enjoyed Manila's legendary sunsets, Japanese troops assaulted hundreds of women. Quote, I was raped between 12 and 15 times that night. Well, uh, I cannot remember exactly how many times one victim later testified. I was so tired and horror-stricken that it became a living nightmare. The Japanese did not discriminate. They killed men and women, the old and the young, the strong and the infirm. Alongside thousands of Filipinos, they slaughtered Americans, Russians, Spaniards, Germans, Indians, as well as two Supreme Court justices, the family of a senator, and scores of priests. Quote, the list of known dead that has come to my attention sounds like a who's who of the Philippines, Attorney Marshall Lachalco wrote in his diary. Those residents who were able began that long march out of the city a dangerous journey through an apocalyptic wasteland. It was a scene best described by Life Magazine photographer Carl Maidens. Quote, all morning we had seen the long files of people walking mutely rearward past advancing infantry. Some of them limped with improvised wound dressings. Many of them walked, heaven knows how, with open wounds. The Americans were so inundated with escaping refugees that engineers had to build a catwalk over the Pasig River to help ease the flow out of the city. Now, by the morning of February 23rd, American forces had isolated the last of the Iwabuchi's troops inside the old walled city of Intramuros and a handful of surrounding government buildings. 
The fight, the retake, the walled city began with a massive artillery barrage at 7.30 a.m., one so destructive that it blackened the sky, turning day into night. This is actually a photograph looking down the Pasig River, and you can see that's the walled city there in the distance. And you can see just the clouds hanging over it. In one hour, American forces fired 10,000 mortar and artillery rounds into a 160-acre area. Every second of that bombardment saw an average of three shells fired, creating a continuous rolling thunder that for those civilians trapped inside was like being caught up underneath a freight train. At 8.30 a.m., the artillery fell silent and the assault troops moved in. Quote, the ensuing silence recalled one journalist after the guns had stopped seemed even louder than the bombardment. Once inside, troops discovered that the survivors were almost exclusively women and children. War crimes investigators later determined that the Japanese had killed an estimated 4,000 men in the days leading up to the assault. The Japanese had locked many of them inside cells at Fort Santiago, which was an old military base inside the walled city. There, they burned them. Hundreds of others were found piled inside dungeons, sealed dungeons, uh, that dated back to the Spanish Inquisition. This is actually a photograph of one of those dungeons. And those dungeons are still there today in Manila. And you can go visit them if you're over there. Many of the children rescued were now orphans, including these three. One carrying a bucket of utensils, and the other, if you look in the bottom right-hand corner, a baby doll. But the battle was not over. America still had to eliminate the last of Iwabuchi's forces, holed up inside a handful of government buildings that ringed the old walled city. America blasted the legislature at point-blank range with artillery and then sent in assault troops before the building fell on February 28th. Troops then pounded the agriculture and finance buildings. Iwabuchi decided to make his final stand there in the agricultural building. Quote, if we run out of bullets, we will use grenades, he told his men. If we run out of grenades, we will cut down the enemy with our swords. If we break our swords, we will kill them by sinking our teeth in their throats. But Iwabuchi's vigor withered under the onslaught of America's merciless guns, which pulverized the columns and ripped gaping wounds in the concrete walls around him, exposing the building's sinuous veins of rebar. Now, Iwabuchi had presided over one of the most barbaric massacres of World War II. His troops had wantonly slaughtered tens of thousands of men, women, and children in some of the most cruel and horrible ways. Survival was not an option, and he knew it. So Iwabuchi summoned the last of his remaining forces there in the agricultural building, and he apologized for leading them to doom. Quote, if anyone has the courage to escape, please do so, he instructed them. If not, please take your lives here. The admiral then retreated to his own quarters in the northwest corner of the main floor, where there, the knife, he slid open his belly. A handful of Japanese troops did, in fact, surrender, like this Marine pulled from the agricultural building soon after. But most, however, chose to die. On March 3rd, 1945, 29 days after American forces rolled into the city, the Battle of Manila finally ended. This photograph, a lot of people often think it's Hiroshima when it's actually uh, Manila. The fight to retake the Philippine capital 
had resulted in the deaths of 16,665 Japanese troops, the near total destruction of Admiral Iwabuchi's forces. MacArthur had suffered a little over 1,000 killed and about 5,500 wounded. It was the civilians there that bore the brunt of the horror with an estimated 100,000 killed. The dead were often so disfigured that relatives had to identify them through clothes, cigarette cases, and even keychains. Those who found remains were the lucky ones. Many others would have no resolution. A sentiment best captured in a letter by Santo Tomas attorney John Osborne. Quote, with a heavy heart full of pity, I have during these recent days and weeks observed the searchers, the seekers of their lost loved ones. Daily they have gone out the gate, hoping to find some trace of relative or friend to change the dreadful uncertainty to certainty. It would be the certainty of death. First, they visit the site of the old home, now probably but a heap of ashes and broken walls, then to the homes of relatives and friends for news of the lost. Finally, they just walk the streets looking at the dead, who today are numerous. Over the city of Manila hung that awful stench of death. Worse than the smell, remembered Major Chuck Hen, was the taste of death, which settled on your tongue. Quote, no amount of spitting, he recalled, could clear it away. The battle for Manila had destroyed 613 city blocks, an area containing 11,000 buildings, ranging from banks and schools, churches, neighborhoods, 200,000 people left homeless. A post-war American survey estimated that the damage to Manila by today's figures would run more than $10 billion. And of course, beyond the structural losses were the cultural ones, the historic churches dating back several centuries, museums filled with sculptures, paintings, priceless literary works, the archives filled with the history of a nation. And of course, the economy was in shambles, a sentiment best described by Abraham Hartendorf. Both the manager of one of the Manila Oil Companies and speaking of rebuilding his plant stated that he would have to begin again at the beginning with a land survey. More than anything, however, was that incalculable loss of the nation's precious human capital made up of visionaries like Dr. Nick Reyes, who's founder of Far Eastern University, but who'd once offered so much to the future of a soon-to-be soon independent Philippines until his murder by the Japanese, along with his family on February 9th. Just as destabilizing in the long run, of course, were the deep wounds left in so many nuclear families, exemplified by the child's loss of a mother or father in a lifetime of memory. Amid this sea of destruction, MacArthur returned to the Manila Hotel to find his own home in ruins. Gone was his vast personal library of more than 10,000 volumes. Gone were his father's Civil War medals and mementos. Gone was his own son Arthur's baby book, a loss that crushed Gene MacArthur. Quote, you wanted to know about my apartment at the hotel, Gene MacArthur wrote in a letter to a friend. Of that, as well as everything else I know in Manila, it is gone. General Yamashita remained elusive until the end of the war, when he walked out of the mountains and surrendered. He was put on trial in the fall of February 1945 in the first war crimes trial in all of Asia, accused of failing to control his troops. Yamashita blamed everything on Iwabuchi, even though evidence showed Yamashita um, was in touch with Iwabuchi throughout the battle and could have intervened to stop it had he wanted to. Furthermore, Yamashita was no stranger to this level of barbarity and horror. 
His own troops had committed similar atrocities after his victory in Singapore. While his chief of staff in the Philippines had played a critical role in the rape of Nanking. Over the course of 32 days, the Battle of Manila was replayed before a panel of five judges and a total of 16,000 spectators who jammed into the courtroom, which today is actually the ballroom of the U.S. Embassy in Manila. Where there, they sat shoulder to shoulder each day to watch. A parade of 286 witnesses, doctors, lawyers, teachers, even gravediggers, testified about what happened in the city of Manila. Yamashita was convicted on December 7, 1945. His dogged defense lawyers appealed his case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but ultimately lost. On February 23, 1946, in a sugarcane field 40 miles south of Manila, Yamashita, there stripped of all his military decorations and even his uniform, was hanged. Incidentally, the papers of Yamashita's of the chief jurist of his trial are actually on file here. And it was in those papers that I learned, there's no one ever knew until this book came out, well, except for the five people, what the actual vote was for his guilt and the decision to hang him. And uh, the reason being is that those five jurists, the last time they gathered there in the U.S. Embassy to make their decision over Yamashita's fate, made a pact that they would never speak publicly about that trial or ever let people know sort of how they had voted. But that personal letter from 1970, written by General Russell Reynolds, is actually on file here, in which he admits that not only did they all vote unanimously of his guilt, they voted unanimously to hang them, and that in all the decades afterwards, his conscience had remained, quote, clear as a bell. Yamashita's execution did little to provide solace for the victims, many of whom would go on to battle years of physical torment. Others wrestled with emotional wounds, Scores more struggled to understand the savagery and the barbarity inflicted upon them. Quote, it was just total hatred and savagery, recalled survivor Johnny Rocha. You cannot explain it otherwise. Nearly a half century after the battle, the survivors formed an organization called the Memorare Manila 1945 Foundation, dedicated to preserving the story of the civilian sacrifices during the city's liberation. Now, to memorialize those killed, the organization erected a statue inside the old walled city of a weeping mother cradling a dead infant, surrounded by other dead and dying figures. And the inscription on that statue provides a powerful epitaph to this story. Quote, this memorial is dedicated to all those innocent victims of war, many of whom went nameless and unknown to a common grave, or never even knew a grave at all their bodies having been consumed by fire or crushed to dust beneath the rubble of ruins. Let this monument be the gravestone for each and every one. And that concludes my formal presentation. Thank you guys very much. We're happy to take some questions. Yeah. So we wrap up this upbeat story. All right, ladies and gentlemen, most of you uh, know how this works. Please raise your hand, and I'll come to you with the, uh, uh, with the microphone. Please wait until I get to you to ask your question. So we're going to start off right here in the middle. What tactical advantage would uh, Yamashita, in, in, other, in, in, in other circumstances, such as in China, in Singapore, and so forth, 
what possessed, do we have any concept of what possessed them to behave this way? Yeah. I, some years ago, I was on a bus traveling from Prague to, uh, to uh, Nuremberg. And there was a Japanese uh, man, probably 50-ish, with his elderly mother. And um, his dress, his speech, he was a very cultured individual. And so it's a relatively long ride. So I was talking to him, just the two of us. And I asked him a question which is similar to what I've just posed. And I said, with all the elements of correctness, of culture, of politeness, of order that we're familiar with in Japan today, and I've not ever been to Japan, I said, how do you, what is your explanation for the behavior of Japanese troops in the Second World War? I said, we're all familiar with it in the West. The difference between uh, the, uh, the enemy in Western Europe and the Japanese behavior and what your percentages were as a prisoner, if you became a prisoner of any of these armies, it was abysmal with Japan. Do you have any explanation from this? And I thought it was a, I, it was an opportunity to ask a thought-provoking question. And he thought for a minute, and he said, you have to understand, when you put Japanese men in uniform, they become very, very dangerous. That was his answer. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, on a very simplistic sort of way, you know, uh, there's been a lot, I mean, you have to remember, what happened in Manila was not unique. Manila, if anything, it's the bookends that really began with the rape of Nanking, 1937-1938. And you see these types of atrocities wherever the Imperial Japanese Army really went. You, know, you saw them in Singapore, you saw them in Hong Kong, in the wake of the Doolittle Raid, 250,000 people were killed. They went into villages in China, unleashed bacteriological warfare. Uh, a lot of the same type violence, same type sexual assaults, things like that. So what happened in Manila is not unique. Um, and, and, and also, there have been a number of, a number of people who have tried to explain what happened. You know, one of them was, well, you know, in the Japanese military, you know, the grunt troops, they were very hard on them. They used to slap them. They had this culture or whatnot. Well, you know, I, I don't buy that. That doesn't explain how you go from being slapped to how you go from throwing an infant in the air and catching them on the tip of your bayonet. The other explanation people I've heard people say is, well, you know, this would happen in Manila and what happened elsewhere. It's, it's, it's this unique orgy of violence that happens when you're in a doomed force surrounded by the Americans and you just go haywire. And that's not true here either. And the reason we know that is because the Japanese actually took the time to put in writing how best to do what they did in Manila. This was not a random act of violence. They actually they put in writing. They said, you know, when civilians are to be killed, we have to be conscious of, of ammunition, so why don't you group them in buildings that are scheduled to be burned and burn them or throw them in the river. So a desperate last act is not something that you figure out. That's premeditated is what I'm saying. Is that, that's, so, um, so, you know, there's also the huge, you know, like John Dower and his in War Without Mercy and, and, and others have argued, you know, there's a racial component to what happened there. And, uh, uh, that happened between Japan and its neighbors and sort of, you know, because, and, and there's some truth, I think, to, to that in the fact that I think if you're going to commit this level of violence against somebody, you have to dehumanize them. And how you go about dehumanizing them, whether it's based on nationality or race, is it, kind of immaterial. It's the fact of the matter is you have to, to go and, and, and do that to be able to commit these kinds of atrocities. Um, and so that's, that's essentially what happened in Manila. Now I'll add an, an additional component to that is that Manila had, um, there had been a long simmering tension building up in the Philippines between 
the, the Filipinos and the Japanese. And, uh, and that the Japanese, when they took the Philippines to the United States, they really thought that the Filipinos would welcome control by a fellow Asian nation than they would by the Americans. And they underestimated the affection that a lot of Filipinos had for the Americans. And that grew over the course of the, uh, over the war. And you saw it, and particularly as the Filipino guerrillas got stronger and stronger. And the targeted assassinations began to rise and whatnot. So soon after Yamashita arrives in October 1944, in fact, they find that there's dynamite's been buried underneath the uh, floorboards of the officers' quarters where he's staying. So the guerrilla attacks had gotten that successful. So it really built up this, this, this animosity there, this sort of powder keg. And the Japanese knew that as soon as, and Yamashita even knew this, as soon as the Americans rolled in, the Filipinos would actually band together with the Americans and they would have you know, to be able to fight both, fight both the Americans and the Filipinos. And so that was one of the reasons Yamashita wanted not to get involved in the city and, and, and stay outside where he could fight more on his terms. Uh, but Iwabuchi, you know, he, uh, you know, he had no intentions of leaving the city. And there was no strategic value to Manila from a military standpoint outside of its waterfront. You know, it had a big deep water anchorage there where you could put a lot of big warships and things like that. And it had a lot of port facilities that the American Navy could have used. But beyond that, there was no real strategic value to the city. And so, if anything, it was punitive. Punitive. Uh, a way to punish the Filipinos uh, for their years of loyalty and their aggress aggression by their guerrillas and the passive aggressiveness of the population. Punish the Americans who were coming back. Uh, and, and MacArthur, you know, who had lived there. And of course, they, 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 they all knew that. I mean, Tojo had stayed in MacArthur's house when he came there. They all knew this, the symbolism of it. Um, so I think kind of all of that really factors in uh, into why it happened. But there's not like one magic crystal single answer that defines it. I think it's really a myriad of those things. Yeah, it doesn't. And so, uh, and, and neither really does Singapore. And, and, and the Doolittle Raid was punitive. I mean, they were punishing, in the wake of the Doolittle Raid, punishing the Chinese who had helped the Americans. And I think there's a certain sense of that here as well. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's about it. That's, yeah, I, think, I, think, I think nobody has that sort of mad. And of course, you know, with so many of them killed, you know, we only had about 300 survivors of the Battle of Manila. And, you know, most of these guys were the ones left on the battlefield. They had standing orders to kill their own and so that they wouldn't be captured. And the guys that, we, that were survived were those that were so bad off, nobody figured they would live. And of course, they did, and we interrogated them all. Most of them denied any knowledge of the atrocities. Some did. Some actually acknowledged it. And most of their answers were, well, I was ordered to do it. So, and again, it shows that premeditation coming down from above. All right. We got one way back here in the back. I'll make this question quick. If there was no strategic value to Manila, why were we there? <laughs> well, no, I mean, we, were, uh, we, we didn't anticipate being there quite as long as we did. We were going to turn power back over to the Filipinos. And we had this big ceremony at the end of the battle in which we uh, we'd brought uh, then-President Sergio Osmania back and were there to hand power back over and, and essentially move on. So. Uh, largely a symbolic, if you will.
Um, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I'm Tim McGrew. I'm one of the War College students. Okay. Um, so I just finished reading the rescue of um, Los Banos. Yeah. Um, so two two questions really is one. Um, what was the strain of the resources of MacArthur coming in dealing with um, all the prison camps and the um, POWs? And then also why was why weren't the um, uh, you know the um, guerrilla units integrated more with uh, the actions in Manila, uh, you know, as they were, they supported, the guerrilla supported a lot of the work or actions to uh, rescue Los Banos. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, uh, a, a huge strain, actually, when we came into Manila and we liberated Santo Tomas and we realized that these internees were in such awful shape that they were. In fact, you know, they were dying at an average rate of three to four a day by the time we got there. And those fatalities would continue because if that, when you're that far gone, you can't just show up and suddenly feed somebody and they survive. So we continue to have people dying uh, literally for days after that. Uh, and so when we had actually come into Manila, we'd organized what was called the Flying Column at that time, which was a, a really fast-moving group of cavalrymen that kind of came in with rations only. And so they had to, at that point, suddenly 3,700 civilians. And then the next day, they end up at Bilibid, which was a, uh, just a few blocks away where they had another 875 people there. So suddenly you have you know, these American forces that have now inherited thousands of starving internees. And so they very quickly had to rush supplies in from Lingayen Gulf, uh, in which they, you know, medical clearing companies and things like that to be able to help out. So, but initially it was a huge, uh, it was a huge problem for them. And, and uh, there were some stores that the Japanese had that they were able to get rice and things like that that they were able to utilize early on. But, but it was everything had to be brought in, brought in from uh, from Lingai and Gulf. Um, everything from mosquito nets and vegetable oil. I mean, you name it, just truckloads and truckloads that had to be brought in. Um, you know, early in the we did the Filipino guerrillas did not play a huge role in the in the early liberation of Manila. In fact, there was one exception to that, which is uh, this one Filipino guerrilla uh, who actually guided the Americans in that first night to Santo Tomas. In fact, he, but he wasn't, it was not organized. He actually stepped out and blocked the Americans as they were coming in. They were lost coming in. He stepped out, climbed in the first vehicle and said, I can get you to Santo Tomas. He did, and he was actually one of the first casualties once they got there and the first firefight opened up against the Japanese. And he died a few days later. So he really, uh, his son's still alive, actually lives in Manila. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't really have that kind of level of coordination that they, you saw even just a few weeks later in, um, uh, with the rescue of Los Banos. So. This is a bit of a follow-up to a previous question, but uh, why didn't MacArthur isolate uh, Manila, um, you know, try to starve the Japanese out, do something else rather than destroy the, the heart of the city? Um, it seems to me that, uh, that that might have been an option that would have maybe, if not saved lives, at least saved the infrastructure of Manila, um, number one. <laughs> Second one, why so little written in... Uh, the United States about this battle. It seems the biggest uh, urban battle of the United States in the Pacific during the war. Um, how come it's taken so many years for um, you to bring it out? Why didn't somebody do this earlier? Yeah. Um, and then lastly, Yamashita. Okay, that's no, okay. No, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no. I, I, but I just like to follow up about yeah. Yamashita. You, you, you say that Yamashita uh, was the five. Uh, gentlemen who were on the, uh, who were essentially the judges said that he was definitely guilty. Yet there's been a cottage industry saying that uh, 
Yamashita was framed, and uh, he should not, not have gotten the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all those are three big questions. So let me uh, let me try to take them sort of one at a time here. Um, you know, coming into the city, uh, MacArthur just really didn't grasp what was going on. And I'll tell you, you know, he was convinced that the Japanese were going to do exactly what he did at the beginning of the war, which was leave. And that there wasn't much of a strategic value there other than the waterfront, and so they would just pull out. And his own intelligence guys were telling him, hey, you know, we're, we're not so sure about that. Um, in fact, you know, we're getting these reports from guerrillas that there's fortification going on and things like that, and we're, we're a lot more worried about it. And he actually pushed back, and he said, at one point, he said, you know what, there have been three great intelligence officers in, in, in world history, and mine's not one of them. And so MacArthur, they get to the city, of course, and, and, and the Japanese start burning it and destroying it literally from the, the moment they get there. MacArthur's first time in the city is on February 7th. Okay, it's, Americans get there February 3rd. He comes in on February 7th. At that point, the entire districts north of the Pasig River have been destroyed. I mean, they've just totally burned down. So MacArthur gets there, and he goes to the old Malakanan Palace, which is still the palace there today. And he's up there on there. And he's actually had to pass through these areas to get there. He gets up on the balcony there at the presidential palace. He's looking out at the Pasig River, and he's looking straight across into central Manila, which is where all the big government buildings are, are and whatnot, and which is about to be the biggest fight, the battlefield, really, for the city of Manila. And he tells Baitler and his other uh, field commanders that are there, he says, you know, I bet a single platoon could cross this river and take Manila. So here he is, after, even after he's come through and he has seen the devastation of the North Park, he's standing there and he tells his commander's at. I mean, he's just oblivious to what's going on. So, in fact, he still, at this point, goes back to his headquarters. He only comes into the city three times during the totality of the battle. He comes two times at the very, very end, but really only about three times when the actual heaviest of fighting is going on. The rest of the time, he's about 60 miles out, staying on a, on a hacienda out there, and just kind of, you know, and, and following the news from afar, if you will. And so he, um, he goes back out to his headquarters, and he's planning his parade and whatnot. And... Um, and, and, and to some extent, his field commanders really failed him in that, I'll tell you, he sends a, he sends a, a, a message down to Eichelberger, who's his 8th Army commander, who's about 50 miles south of the city early on. And he's writing in his own diary that 50 miles south of the city, he can see the, the glow of Manila burning. And he writes in his diary, he says, you know, there's going to be nothing left when we get there at this rate. I mean, they're burning it. And then he gets this cable from MacArthur radiogram saying, you know, hey, uh, I want you in Jeep 7. And he writes back, not does he write back and be like, you know, maybe the Liberation Parade's not a good idea right now. He writes back and he says, I'm honored. So he doesn't tell him. And so what happens is MacArthur's, Bill Dunn from CBS News, who's exhausted after he's come in with the cavalry, he's helped with the liberation of Santa Tomas, he's been awake for like, you know, 70-some hours. He's like, i got to take a break. And he goes back out to MacArthur's headquarters to get some sleep. And he goes in there, and, and they're talking about the Liberation Parade, and they're about to have a press conference to announce it. And Bill Dunn goes, what, what are you talking about? You can't have a press conference on this. Have you seen what's going on in the city? And they're like, calm down, Bill. We know you're stressed out and emotional right now. And it's Bill Dunn. It is a journalist from CBS News who ultimately is the one that says they're wrecking the city right now. And so MacArthur had his own intuition, his gut that he disbelieved. He had his officers who wouldn't really tell him straightly what exactly was going on. And he wasn't there himself. Uh, to really see it, to, to be able to get a sense of it. And so I think at that point, and by the time the Americans are in there, and once the battle's engaged, it's on. You know, we found on February 9th, just a, just a few days after we've gotten into the city, we found Iwabuchi's battle plans. 
in a, in a graveyard there. And we immediately translated it. And on it, made the analysis that came back highlighted the fact that there is no plan of retreat. So we knew just six days in that this was going to be a fight to the death. Why, you know, we debated later on, once we had them isolated outside the walled city, about starving them out at that point. But at that point, so much of the destruction was done. And then also we knew that they had fortified these buildings and had six months of food supplies. And we weren't going to wait six months for them to be able to go there. Uh, as far as destroying the buildings and things like that, Baitler didn't care. And he wrote afterwards, he's like, my job wasn't to protect architecture. My job was to protect American troops. Um, the last thing I'll add, too, is like, you know, whether there's always the debate about whether or not we should have skipped the Philippines, whether we should have gone to Formosa and things like that. You would have had a catastrophe one way or the other. You either destroyed the city or you would have had tens of thousands of people starve to death. All the Americans would have been dead if we'd skipped the Philippines, if we'd skipped going back. You'd have 7,000 Americans there. You'd have had children, American children there. You imagine what the media would have done when you had John Doe, 40 motor companies, Asia executives, his kids starve to death. I mean, it would have just kind of would have been a mess anyway you shaped it. So uh, as, and we can maybe, somebody else may want to pick up the Amasha thing. I don't want to, or grab me afterwards, because I can go on and on about that as well. So, You mentioned that during the battle, MacArthur hesitantly authorized the use of artillery. If it had become apparent that the Japanese were not going to give up, that there was no plan of retreat, why would he just stop at artillery, especially when it had become apparent even late on, even later on in the battle that the Japanese were just destroying the city? Why not just authorize carrier-borne stri carrier strike path, strike craft to uh, bomb these heavily fortified buildings? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, his, I'll tell you, his, his field commanders all wanted to use air power. I mean, they, they, artillery was like the, that was the, We'll take the best we can get. They all wanted to use air power, and they were very upset. In fact, uh, Kruger, um, I mean, not Kruger, uh, Oscar Griswold wrote in his diary, which, again, right here. You can read his diary over there in the library. I used it. That's where I got it when I was doing my research about why shouldn't we just use it and destroy the city. This stuff was happening all over Europe anyway. I mean, that's what he wrote in his diary. And so I think MacArthur's commanders were, you know, for them, it wasn't as big, that, that wasn't as big of a concern uh, whether they were going to use uh, the destruction of buildings and things like that. Um, as far as, uh, I'm sorry, I just kind of had drove a blank. R remind me of what you were asking, the, the artillery and then, um, oh, why, the other point I was going to make. The Japanese were hiding amongst the civilian population, and so it made it more difficult. Um, you had, not, inside the walled city, for instance, they, from the very beginning, when the Americans rolled in, they closed all the big doors to the walled city. And truly, it's medieval. It's Game of Thrones. If you go to the walled city there, I mean, it, it literally... You know, there are these huge walls that, like, cars drive through them. And there's, like, you can walk around the tops. And, and so they closed all the cities, and they wouldn't let anybody out. All the exits, they wouldn't let anybody out. Uh, they did the same thing. They went into the Philippines General Hospital, which is still there today, PGH. And there are 7,000 refugees in there, surviving by drinking water out of toilet tanks and things like that. And they went in there, and they infiltrated among the civilians. And so it made it really hard for us in pinpointing where to get them, you know? I mean, it wasn't like they were all here in one place. They tended to infiltrate among the civilians, which made it that much harder for us in sort of being able to target that. A lot of the American artillery, I'll add, too, was directed at key targets. And if you look at the artillery maps, if you look at, like, the destruction of the Japanese, you can tell what parts of the city the Japanese destroyed and what parts that the Americans did. A lot of ours was directed at, at the walled city. It was directed at the big buildings that we knew were housing the Japanese, like the agriculture, finance, City Hall, Post Office, and things like that. So you can kind of map out the city, who did more destruction in which districts. Yep. 
Next. Uh, we'll come to you next, yeah. Uh, 20 degree do you think both the Battle of Manila and the Japanese atrocities, how much did that influence Truman's decision to drop the atomic bomb? Um, you know, I, th that program was long underway by the time the Battle of Manila came around. But that said, you know, I, there was, if you look in the diaries of some of them, like Griswold's diary, I think, for instance, is one of them that references, he writes, you know, is this what we're going to find if we have to go and retake Hong Kong? Is this what we're going to see if we have to take Singapore? I mean, so there's no doubt that, that the decisions, and, and, and Manila wasn't just the only example of fanaticism we saw. I mean, if you look at what happened on Tarawa and Beishio and places like that, we knew the tenacity of the, of the Japanese. And so, but I think if anything, it reinforced, at least in the eyes of the commanders that saw it all there. Um, I will add, Bonner Fellers had in one of his letters, he was one of MacArthur's aides, he wrote after seeing Manila, he said, uh, if anything should happen to Tokyo, they deserve it after seeing Manila. And uh, um, so, but there's no doubt, I mean, you know, the U.S. was trying to prevent putting boots on the ground in any way possible and putting the pressure on the air for the air war to bring it to an end. I, I believe, like many people, I knew the Battle of Manila was bad, but I never realized it was this bad until I read your book. As, as you did your research and your writing, was there any preconceived notions that you had or things changed or anything that struck you that you huh. weren't aware of previously? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the things is I knew it was bad. I don't think I knew as how bad it was until I was into it. And I'll tell you, one of the differences, I think, if you look at the Battle of Manila versus if you look at the Rape of Nanking, which I, I really put the two sort of side by side in a lot of ways because they're both, not only are they bookends, but they're both similar type stories of destruction. The difference being is that Manila, because it had been an American colony, um, the records that came out of it, and because it was the Americans that came back in and liberated, the records that came out of Manila were just astonishingly thorough. In fact, we realized very soon after the Battle of Manila that we were looking less at a battlefield and more at a crime scene. And so we sent in an army of JAG personnel and investigators to really fan out through the city, starting, I mean, MacArthur on February 17th orders all atrocities investigated. Battle's only been going on two weeks, and he goes ahead and puts that order out. Battle ends on March 3rd. The investigations start. And these investigators went out and they went to field hospitals and they interviewed people bedside in these places. A lot of these field hospitals were in you know, primary schools or the jockey, uh, the um, horse racing stadium and things like that. Anything that had a roof over it became a hospital really at the end. They photographed the wounds like you saw here. They sketched out the uh, uh, maps and things, places like that. Those reports ended up running tens of thousands of pages. And, uh, and, I, and, and when I was doing my research, I was going up to the National Archives, spent an entire summer going back and forth to the National Archives, and I could copy about 4,000 pages of those records a day using a digital camera. And I think I digitized about 65,000 pages of records related to this. And, you know, and then in order to figure out exactly, then I had to read them all. And there were so many of them that I had to build a database to track it. So actually then, in order to track people by surname, what kind of injury they had, things like that, so I'd be able to find again, because you, you get that much material, you're really in the information management business. And if you find some great quote, you're like, that's an awesome quote, and then a year and a half later when you're writing that scene and you don't remember where that quote is, you will never find it again if you don't have a way to track it. Um, and so that level of detail, and, and, and these, I mean, because these depositions were done days, weeks right afterwards, I mean, you have, 
Someone's describing what it's like to be marched up the stairs in that house on Singalong Street, forced to kneel over that hole. He write, one, of the, one of the witnesses wrote about how they could smell stale wine on the breasts of these guys right before he brought that sword down on the back of his neck. You know, and as he's pushed down in that hole, and he survives, because, you know, cutting off 200 heads is a lot of work. And a lot of times they would get in that thick muscle there. And those nine guys that survived, survived because they didn't get them in the neck and they got them in that muscle. One of those guys, Richard Escara, is down in the bottom of that hole. And he's there all night long until these guys leave. And then he, in order to get out of this building, he has to climb this pyramid of bodies to go back out that hole. Okay? Imagine doing that. And he, wrote, he, he was interviewed about that in this 10-page deposition three weeks later. And so when you get that level of detail and you read it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrific. And so I work at home in a home office, right? So I'm reading all this stuff all day long. You can imagine I'm a barrel of monkeys to be around, right? So, and I got two kids when they're 9 and 11, and they come home in the afternoons from school, and I'd be like, guys, dad needs a hug. And they're like, dad, you're so weird. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, it's a downer. I mean, it really was. And, uh, but you know what was really interesting is, so I went over to the Philippines in February. I did, and, and when I was doing research for the book, I went over there, and I interviewed survivors and things like that. And I was over there. I, we did a whole book tour, and I went out, and I went to, did 11 different lectures around the city of Manila. It's amazing how many people who had survived this turned out. And uh, one woman stood up. She still had shrapnel on her arm. Another one had it in her, in her head. Sur a survivor from St. Paul's. I mean, as hard as it was for me to read through it all, it's amazing that these folks have lived for all these years with that and sort of how it still affects and plays a role in the city of Manila and in the lives there today. So, yeah. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.